uh, to Acts chapter 12. We'll be there this evening. Acts chapter 12. I do want to reiterate my thankfulness to be able to come and share the Word with you all. Um, honestly, this is an immense privilege. It's a, a great privilege to be able to do this. And in this book, where we are really complimenting and learning about what our church history is. I mean, for lack of better words, this is, this is our family history. And so, uh, as we look at Acts chapter 12... Um, we think back, just uh, going to give you a 90-second review of what we covered the past several weeks uh, in regards to the previous chapters and what is going on in Acts. Well, at this point, the gospel is going forward from Jerusalem through Judea, and it's starting to reach through Judea and Samaria. When you think of uh, Acts 1.8 and the, the Great Commission and Jesus telling the disciples to go forth into all nations, we just saw it up on the... The presentation, but where it was going, starting in Jerusalem, going out to Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. Well, we haven't got to the uttermost parts of the world yet in Acts, but we're getting there. And in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, we uh, read about Peter and his foray into the Gentile areas there in Antioch, uh, in particular, where the first plant, uh, church plant uh, what took place where you had Cornelius, uh, and it's the Italian community that uh, was reached with the gospel. And so now you have this blending of believers that were of Jewish descent and believers of Gentile descent. And they were starting to really coalesce into one body of Christ, the church. And this was fundamentally different than what the Jewish believers had really experienced up to this point. This was different than what the disciples had experienced. This was different than what was taking place in Jerusalem. And so you have this transition from exclusive Jewish Christianity to you have Jew and Gentile Christianity. In fact, it was in Antioch that these believers were called Christians. And so we talked about that last week. And basically, we have this thrust of the gospel going outward from Jerusalem. Acts chapter 12 actually brings the attention back to Jerusalem. So while the gospel is going forward, Luke, the author, brings the attention of the reader back to what's going on in Jerusalem. Now, if you're familiar with church history, you're familiar with the fact that as the gospel spread, persecution increased. And when you think of persecution, perhaps you think of Roman leaders like Nero or maybe Caligula, you think of this brutal treatment of Christians in the Colosseum for the entertainment of the people. But really, most, if not all, of the church persecution, at least initially, took place at the hands of their own countrymen, the Jews. In fact, that's really what Acts chapter 12 is about. It's about the persecution that the Christians began to face at the hands of their fellow Jews. This is where the persecution began. And so, as we have this transition, the focus at least, back to Acts chapter 12, we start to see how obstacles were placed or being placed in the progress of the Gospel. These obstacles that perhaps may not have been present, but now were coming into very much the attention of the Christians in the spread of the gospel. But really what I want us to leave with tonight, looking at Acts chapter 12, is this. 
if God wants the gospel to spread, and we could say that he does, if God wants the gospel to spread, then no obstacle, whether it be difficult circumstances, whether it be defiant people, will stand in his way. When God wants the gospel to spread, regardless of the obstacles, it's going to spread. It's going to go forward. Now, what were those obstacles? And for sake of time, really, we're just going to look at two categories. We're going to look at this chapter. We won't read every verse, but we'll be able to at least see what's going on. The first obstacle addressed in Acts chapter 12 is the obstacle of difficult circumstances. So if you're taking notes, basically the obstacles to the gospel that God can overcome. First of all is the obstacle of difficult circumstances. Now let's look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. So you see, first of all, in this obstacle of circumstances, very much a Jewish flavor. Okay? So, obviously, we're, we're talking here about Herod. Herod was a Jewish leader. He wasn't a Roman leader. He was at least nominally Jewish. And he was the one that was doing the persecuting. Not only that, but we also see the fact that you had individual Jews named as having been either persecuted or killed. We have the second martyr on record, James, the brother of John, put to death. You have Peter being imprisoned, and the response was good, at least from Herod's standpoint. Verse 3, it says, he saw that it pleased the Jews. So these other Jews here in Jerusalem, who were against the spread of the gospel, who were against this Christianity, this group that called themselves the way, they were known as the way, there were many Jews that opposed it. And so when Herod went ahead and cracked down, killing James, imprisoning Peter, two very significant leaders in the church, the Jews were pleased. That being said, you also had this taking place during a Jewish feast. Verse 3, that was during the days of unleavened bread. What are the obstacles? Well, some of them are pretty obvious, but maybe not all of them. First of all, there's an obstacle of physical need. They say, where do you see that in this passage? At the beginning of verse 12 or verse 1, it says, now about that time. You have to remember, when Luke wrote to Theophilus, when Luke wrote this letter, he didn't have it in nice, neat chapter and verse divisions. So it wasn't as if as you know, Theophilus and the other readers in the church were getting to this point, they're like, okay, chapter 12, like you and I are doing it. They would have been reading it much like a letter. So when we look just before chapter 12 in chapter 11, we see some circumstances that the church was in. Look back to chapter 11, verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for relief of the brethren living in Judea. And they did, sending in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. There were some physical difficulties going on outside of what Herod was doing. There was a famine. And the church of Jerusalem was actually being supported by the first church plant, the church of Antioch. So 
things were scarce. Things were difficult. Not only that, but we also see the difficulty of circumstances in the form of the persecution experience. You see in verse 2, obviously James, the brother of John, put to death. You see Peter imprisoned. But how do they face these difficult circumstances? How do they face them? Well, first of all, we see in verse 5, prayer. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Look over at verse 13. I'm sorry, verse uh, 12. This is after, uh, this is later on the passage. It says, and when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark, where, and here's why I bring this verse up, where many were gathered together and were praying. What was the church's response to their difficult circumstances? Well, first of all, it was prayer. It was going to the Lord in prayer. Second of all, it was through being with other believers. So the church undergoing physical difficulty through the famine. Difficulty just by virtue of having lost a brother in Christ. Difficulty with having one of the leaders, another leader of the church, imprisoned. I mean, if there was anything that would have set this church in a tizzy or in an uproar, just as far as an emotional um, uproar, it would be circumstances like this. I mean, if you think about it from the outside in, this would have been somewhat comical to the unbelievers. The unbelievers who look at all this and they see this group of Christians who call themselves the way and everything that was going on in the way was the wrong way. I mean, that's what they call themselves, the way. When you look at church history in Josephus and his record of what was going on, this was hardly the way that anyone would have signed up for. And yet, these Christians were responding in prayer, but then also responding by gathering with one another. I find it interesting, even tonight, that Pastor Tim had us read 1 Peter. Um, we, won't, we, we don't have time to look back, but you already read 1 Peter verses uh, 3 through 9 of chapter 1. That Christians will face difficulties and persecution, but they persevere in doing what's right and they trust the promises of God. And as we're looking through this passage of Acts chapter 12, it's important to keep in mind the writings of Peter. 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and his letters. They correspond with what's going on here in the church's history. And especially when you read what Peter writes in his first letter, it's especially noteworthy where Peter takes his comfort and where Peter is instructing the church. Now, God provides comfort through these difficult circumstances, through prayer, through being with other believers. But on occasion, God will provide miraculously. And He did so here. In verse 5, Peter was kept in prison. They're praying for him. But as we see in verse 6 and following... Something was about to happen where God would supernaturally deliver Peter. On the very night where Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the guards in the front door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up! Get up quickly! And his chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, but he did not know what was being done by the angel, whether or not it was real or not, because he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, verse 10, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city. 
which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Just in these five verses, or six verses, I see five different miracles. Five things. Obviously, the angel showing up is kind of miraculous. That doesn't happen often. The loosening of the shackles. He was in prison. There were 16 guards around him. The shackles fall off. The fact that the guards, in spite of this light shining, in spite of the shackles falling off, which I'm sure didn't fall with a nice quiet, you know, they didn't wake up. They were in a heavy slumber. Then you also have Peter walking with this angel, just walking right through the garrison, right out through the city, and voila, the the city gate opens right up, and out they go. And this is so incredible that Peter, while this is going on, is wondering, is this even real? Is this a dream? But it was very much real. And so after this took place, after this miracle took place, you have Peter going to the home of John Mark, where we read earlier in verse 12. Verse 11, it says, when Peter came to himself, he says, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Why didn't he do this with James? You know, if I'm James's wife or family, you know, recounting what God was doing for Peter, why isn't God an equal opportunity God in some cases? If I can put it that way, it's kind of crass. But Why is it that he sees fit to have James martyred? And I mean, he barely gets a verse in chapter 12. You know, when James, the brother of John, had been put to death with a sword. And then on to Peter. As we look through what God does in seeing the gospel spread, there's an ongoing reality that his ways are not our ways always. And that his plan for the gospel to spread would follow his script. And even as we see Peter at this point escaping from prison, and as we see Peter going to John Mark's house and the servant girl hearing and going in and telling everybody, and they couldn't believe it, and so they let Peter come in, and he's recounting the story to them. And then in verse 16, Peter continued knocking. When they'd opened the door, they saw him. They were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And then you have this really kind of odd sentence. And it's odd from the standpoint of everything that's happened up to this point in Acts 12. That sentence is, then he left and went to another place. You say, well, that doesn't seem that odd. I mean, he just was let go out of prison. Maybe he's making sure that if you know, they were chasing after him, he wouldn't be caught. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is really the end of Peter's public ministry as far as what we read in Acts. And you have this transition from Peter to Paul. You know, Peter, who was the minister, one of the leaders in Jerusalem, and his ministry was well known, it was well respected. In fact, so much so that there was even division in the Corinthian church about who was following Paul and who was following Apollos and who was following Peter. 
I mean, some were pitting Peter against other leaders. And you think of the veneration that the Roman church has for Peter. Peter was the first pope, according to them. Peter was the first saint upon which the Roman Catholic Church was built. One of the largest and most ornate Catholic churches in the world, St. Peter's. You have multiple churches named after St. Peter. Yet when we read Acts, this is it. I mean, we do hear of him in Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council. But as far as his evangelism, as far as his leadership, he kind of almost fades off the scene. Why is that? We don't know. But what we do know is that God had a plan for the gospel to go forward. And the difficulty of these circumstances was not going to be an obstacle that would stand in the way of the gospel. And God would see fit on how and who that gospel would be carried and who it would be carried by. Now starting here, like I said, he's moving off the scene. Peter's moving off the scene. And we see this end of Peter's public ministry and the shift to Paul. I also think it's noteworthy as we look at Peter's ministry, and especially on the the heels of Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, Peter was the pioneer of missions to the Gentiles. But he's predominantly known as the missionary to the Jews. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2. Very quickly. Galatians chapter 2. Paul's writing to the church, churches in Galatia. And in verse 7, he says this, But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, to the Jews, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. You say, why bring this up? What does this have to do with obstacles and difficulties and and ministry and and the, the spread of the gospel? Well, remember how uncomfortable Peter must have been carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. But it was in God's plan for him not to be continually carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. In fact, it says here that Peter had a ministry primarily to the Jews. And I think that's noteworthy for us from the standpoint of many times an obstacle or the, perhaps the difficulty of the circumstances for us having the responsibility of the Great Commission is that if we extend the gospel to maybe where God has put us right then and there, we feel like we're going to be stuck there forever. Like we have this sense of, okay, God, I know I'm here and I know you've given me this opportunity, but I feel like honestly, if I minister here or if I share the gospel here, it's just going to suck me in and it's just, I'm not going to be able to get out. Like, I don't want to go there, but if I have to go there, I don't want to go there forever. And I'm not just talking about, you know, you know Lord, send me anywhere, go to the farthest you know, reaches of the planet to share the gospel. I'm just talking maybe across the street. Or across you know, the hallway at work, or, or perhaps across the town to the family member. But I think Peter's lesson 
in following God and seeing what he does in, in, in regards to directing in that perhaps he just wants us to obey right then and there. Perhaps he wants us to do what he has us doing to be able to serve him, to honor him, to carry that gospel, and perhaps he might redirect later on. I mean, Peter in the home of Cornelius, Peter with these Gentiles, but Peter wasn't there forever. You had another Jew actually taking that place in the form of Paul. So it's significant, I think, that when we look at Peter, we see his obedience, we see his ministry somewhat fading from an attention standpoint, yet we see a man faithful in spite of very difficult circumstances. Okay? So as the gospel's going forward, we see the reality of facing difficult circumstances, yet God having the gospel go forward in spite of those circumstances. And then finally, in verses 20 through 24, we also see the reality of defiant people being an obstacle to the gospel. So the two obstacles of the gospel here that we're looking at in Acts chapter 12, difficult circumstances, and then defiant people. And this, again, a Jewish individual, Herod. Now verse 19, just to get a little context. When Herod had searched for him, Peter, had not found Peter, he examined the guards in order that, be, that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. And he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord, they came to him, having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain. Basically, they got an inside route to get in Herod's good graces. And they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On the appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to him. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a god and not of a man. Verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. The obstacle of a defiant person here in the form of Herod, a leader, a Jew, speaking to other Jews. Now that's significant, not just from the standpoint of, of the fact that this was Jewish persecution, but the fact that he knew better. See, the Romans, they were the polytheists. In fact, do you remember when Jesus was talking to, to the disciples and they, uh, you know, some of the, the people that were following him asked about paying taxes and he said, take out a piece of coin or take out a coin and he asked whose image was on the coin. You remember that? Okay. And, and it was Caesar. Now you have to remember, Caesar was more than just their leader that they paid taxes to. Caesar was their God according to, to Rome. That was who they ought to worship. In fact, it was transcribed on their currency that he was a god. I mean, our currency says, in God we trust. It would be the equivalent of, like, you know, whoever our president is, you know, every four or eight years changing the currency and putting that leader's name on there and saying, in him we trust. Okay? The Romans, this was common for them. And, and in fact, this was what in part made Christianity somewhat of a threat because of them having another God that was outside them. The Christians had these gods. Well, well near, I'm sorry, Herod wasn't that. Herod was a Jew. So he would have been monotheistic. There's only one God. 
whether or not he formally or you know, personally believed this, at least practically, he, re- he acknowledges. And so when the people say the voice of a God and not of man, this was in the flying in the face of Judaism. Forget Christianity, it was Judaism. These people acknowledging him and him evidently accepting it. He should have known better. And yet what did God do? God struck him down. Josephus, again, the historian, attested the death and actually said that in, de- in describing what happened here with Herod, and I'll spare you the gory details, um, but this, uh, he, he suffered over the period of about five days and eventually died from intestinal worms. And uh, they basically ate him from the inside out. And it was really brutal. It was really painful. Uh, but this was something that was attested by Luke and then by, by, by Josephus. And, and he was judged. And you think back to passages like Psalm 34. You don't need to turn there, but you think of Psalm 34 where uh, we're told that God turns his face away from the wicked. It says in Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, it says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Skipping to verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now, what we see here is that God judges the defiant people at just the right time who would stand in his way. He judges those who would stand in his way at just the right time. And when he does, we see the gospel continuing to move forward. Verse 24, the word of the Lord continued to grow. And so, as we see here, attesting the removal of Herod and the progress of the gospel, God is glorified. You know, we don't have any sense whatsoever that Herod is saved or ever gets saved. And I was thinking about this in light of what Pastor Tim preached this morning. You know, about love and context of unbelievers. How would of the the Christians here responded to someone like Herod. I mean, how, if you were underneath that, how would you have responded to Herod? A despot who was persecuting, who was delighting in the persecution, and then he dies. I mean, was there justification in hating him? Of course not. But was there relief when he died? Most certainly Well, certainly. And so as Christians, we acknowledge the fact that a soul is a soul. And we acknowledge the fact that not every soul responds to the gospel. And that there will be a time when God will judge and judge righteously. And the church will experience relief when that happens. But let's not forget about the last verse in Acts chapter 12. And we'll finish with this. Verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. You say, okay, that's fine, that's good, but what does that have to do with Herod? Sometimes God removes defiant people. Other time, he changes them. Let's not forget what Saul was, used, what, what Saul was like. Saul was on par with Herod when it came to persecuting the church. And yet God, in His plan, changed the heart of Saul and made him a proclaimer of the Gospel. Now, outside of this being a church history lesson, thus, go forward, be blessed, have a wonderful week. So what? 
When we think about our role as ambassadors for Jesus Christ and the circumstances that present themselves that's difficult for the spread of the gospel and perhaps even the defiant ones that we could think of in regards to the spread of the gospel, how does this impact or influence us? First of all, as I'm reading, especially the second half of this chapter, and looking at Herod, who was defiant, I think of those, not necessarily in a one-for-one comparison, but I think of those, and I'll call them heroes in our church, those heroes in our church who regularly come and join with a body of believers who have spiritually mixed families, where perhaps their spouse or their children are unsaved. And they come, and they have a very real obstacle to the gospel in their family. Not Herod-like, but certainly an obstacle. And some have been praying for years and years that their unbelieving spouse would turn to Christ, only to have them maybe dig their heels in a little bit more. Or only have them undermine what that believing spouse has been trying to do for years. I think of unbelieving wives, or I'm sorry, believing wives praying for their unbelieving husbands, trying to raise their children in godliness, only to see that contradicted in action and lack of support. I think of parents who have unbelieving children, where their children are acting out their unbelief and it's creating confusion, it's monopolizing their time, what they want to be able to be doing, and yet. They have these great motives and this energy, but it's like, God, this person, this this unbeliever, they're in my way. Why don't you get them out of my way? Please save them. And he doesn't, at least not yet. So we're wrestling with this. And, And just within the span of six verses, you see how God can work in some ways by removing the obstacle, but in other terms, other 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 cases, actually taking that obstacle and turning them into an ally. And so as believers, we must take hope that every day that person, that unbeliever that might be underneath your roof, wakes up, breathes in and out, and goes about their day, that's another opportunity for them to trust in Christ. And not shortchange the gospel testimony that you are living out, and not shortchange the prayers of the saints for that individual. You think of 1 Peter chapter 3, where he encourages that Believing wife to be an influence, to be a gospel testimony to the unbelieving husband so that even without a word, he might be, and the wording in that passage is, be sanctified. That he's not an obstacle per se. Maybe he's an opportunity. That there is hope. We pray for God's will to be done. We don't know what God's plan is. Will He save that soul? Will He provide spiritual protection? But what we do know is that Christ is building His church. And at this point in Acts, we really close a major section. Because starting in really Acts chapter 12, verse 25, and moving forward, you have Paul coming on the scene, and you have the gospel going to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as we continue to study in Acts, We'll see Paul's first missionary journey, his other missionary journeys, and the different things that God does in using a former opponent, uh, but now a proponent of the gospel. And it's a blessing to see. It's, it's something that, that certainly we delight and, and, and take joy in. But 
understanding the reality that there will be obstacles as the gospel goes forward. Please be in prayer for one another. Please constantly be in prayer for one another. Be mindful of the people that you come and sit by and sit near on a weekly basis. That truly them being with their spiritually fam- spiritual family here might be the only family, spiritual family they have. And that some of us who enjoy going home and perhaps delight in the unity that we have there, others might not have that. And we keep those individuals in prayer. Also being mindful of the obstacles of circumstance that sometimes plague others more than some. And keeping them mindful, having them in our thoughts and our prayers, but then also that God might use those circumstances, God might use those situations and those people to see the gospel go forward. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the time and for the patience of these people. Lord, as we see how the gospel will go forward, but it won't go forward without difficulty, we recognize that you are in control. Lord, it says in Psalm chapter 34 that many are the difficulties of the righteous. We can't be naive holding to a prosperity gospel, believing that simply getting our things right with you makes everything right with the circumstances around us. You tell us, though, that you deliver the righteous out of all of those difficulties. You tell us to taste and see that you are good. That for those who call themselves your saints, your children, for those who fear you, they do not lack anything. God, may we be mindful of the truth found in your word as we're faced with these difficulties. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.